0: Thank you, Hayes. Thank you, team. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. Glad you guys are here. Uh, listen, we are very excited to jump into worship today. And right now, something very special is happening. It's going to be happening over the course uh, of the rest of the summer. But our kids are worshiping with us today. They're not up in kids' worship. They're actually going to be worshiping with us uh, for the next few weeks. And I thought it'd be nice uh, for us as adults to welcome all of our kids into the worship service Can we just welcome them and say, Hey glad you guys are here. Listen, I know this is a little bit different, and I may not be as goofy as Mr. James, but we're going to have a lot of fun. And man, we are glad that you get to worship with us over the next few weeks. Uh, And so you're going to be jumping in right where we've been. Grab your Bibles, if you will, to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 is where we're going to be, as we continue our sermon series called Return, Renew, and Rebuild. God is taking us on a journey together, and we're walking with the Israelites as they return back to Israel. Ezra chapter 4 is where we're going to be in just a second. While you were turning there, kids, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but uh, I don't know if it was taught to you, it was taught to me, but it goes like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Kids, how many of you have heard that? Yes, yes, heard that? Yes. It's kind of one of those things you're just taught, you know, when people are yelling at you on the playground, or they're making fun of you, or throwing names at you, you can throw it back and say, hey, listen, you can throw whatever names you want at me, but those don't actually hurt me. And it's kind of just a defense that we throw back at other people. But I don't know how you feel about that phrase, but I was never super happy about it, because on the one hand, it's true. Those words cannot physically hurt me, and they never did. All right, you can't just throw a word at me. It's not going to break my bones. It's not going to hurt me physically, but it still kind of hurt, did not it? Uh, like it doesn't actually hurt me like my body, but when, when you get yelled at, when you get laughed at, when you have names called against you, when people are saying mean things about you, it might not hurt your body, but it does kind of hurt our feelings, doesn't it? And kids, I hate to tell you this, but that's not something we have to deal with just on the playground. Uh, That's something we have to deal with in life as well. Uh, And your parents can attest to this, uh, that as you grow up, you may have gotten off the playground, but people will not stop calling you names. Uh, They will not stop using words to hurt you. They may not be able to physically hurt you, but they will do what they can to throw those names and those words at you. And so what do we do with that? Man, how do we deal with that when when people are mean to us, when people are opposing us? And whether you're a student, whether you're a child, whether you're an adult, that's something that we are constantly going to have to deal with, and that's actually something that the Israelites are dealing with as well. Uh, Let me kind of catch you up on where you are, and especially for all the kids in the room, we're we're going on a journey. Uh, The Israelites were in the promised land, but they failed to follow God. They would not listen to God. They would not obey him, and so they got punished. God, after literally centuries, brought his judgment upon his people, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and they were carried off into a faraway land. They went into exile. But 50 years later, God brought his people back. He opened up a door, and and tens of thousands of them made the journey. They said, we're going to leave Babylon behind. We're leaving all this stuff we made behind. We want to go back home. And so they did, this whole group of people, they come back to Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild. They lay the foundation of the temple, and they have a huge celebration. Uh, But last week, if you were here, you found out that they got distracted. They had built that foundation, and that was great, but then they got distracted by their homes and all the stuff, and they just let it sit there for 20 years, Until finally, at the encouragement of some prophets, they they begin to rebuild again. And so when we last last left the Israelites, they were in the process of rebuilding their temple. The foundation's been laid, and now they are beginning to rebuild the temple, but now they have a different problem on their hands. And so look at Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and look what it says here. This is now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, that's the head of Israel, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, that's the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Let's stop right there. All right, so the Israelites are doing the right thing. They have come back home. They're rebuilding the temple. They, they think everything's going great, but the surrounding neighbors do not think that this is so great. They've been the big boys on the block. They've kind of ruled the roost, and they are not interested in having a resurgent Israel. They don't want Israel to come back to its former glory. And so they're now going to step in and oppose the work. They're going to do whatever they can to frustrate it, to, to turn it aside, to make sure that they never come back to prominence like they used to be in the days of old. And this is something that we're always going to have to deal with when we follow after the Lord. Whenever you and I find ourselves in a place where we're chasing after the Lord, where we're following His will, we are inevitably going to run up against opposition. Last week, we saw the internal problems of distraction, but this week, we're looking at the external problems when other people say, Don't follow the Lord, don't do what He says, don't obey the will of the Lord. And whether it's here in this time period or all throughout history, all of God's people have always had to deal with this type of opposition. And look, that's something we're going to have to handle as well. We're in a season of rebuilding, a season of renewal, where God is beginning to kind of reform us after this, all this chaos of the pandemic, and He's beginning to do a new work. He's beginning to build new things in us. He's bringing new people in. There's new opportunities opening up to us, and we're excited about that and all the new things that God is doing. But as we do so, we will inevitably run up against opposition, There will be forces, people, attitudes that will say, don't follow after the Lord, don't obey him wholeheartedly, don't stand firm with what you have always believed. And it'll come in different forms, but we're going to be opposed. And how are we going to react to that? How are we going to react when we face inevitable opposition? Are we going to stop? and give up on the work, and give in to the fear that that comes with the opposition, or are we going to persevere? And the answer to that question is gonna come down to our understanding of the providence of God. Do we truly trust that he is good, that he is working, and that he is worth it? Do we trust in who he is and what he is doing in us? Because if we do, that will enable us to persevere even in the face of opposition. And so you say, well, okay, well what are we really talking about here? What, are we, what, what kind of opposition do we have? Well, there's four types of opposition right here in these first seven verses. First off, there's the invitation to compromise. There's the invitation to compromise. Look at verses one through three. It says, now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they were coming back to build a temple to the Lord... They approached the heads of the father's houses and said, Let us build with you, for we also worship the, your God as you do, and we've been sacrificing him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. All right, on the surface, this sounds like they're just offering help hey, man, I see that you're building a temple there. How about we come build with you? Hey, man, I see that you've got some things going on. How about we come and join with you? It sounds on the surface like they are just being neighborly and coming alongside to help. That is not the case here. Notice right there at the beginning of verse one, it says the adversaries. That should have been our first clue, right? These are not the good guys. They are not here to help. These guys are here to hinder. But it says, hey, but they worship God like, like they do. That also is stretching the truth. You see, it says there that they've been here since the king of Assyria brought them. The northern nation of Israel had been conquered, and all their people were taken away, and the king of Assyria brought other peoples and put them in the land of Israel. So these are transplants, these are not the Jewish people. And they kind of did a little bit of a mockery of the Jewish religion. They said, hey, make sure you, you kind of keep some of that going there. Let's let's grab some people. You can be a priest. That's good. You're a priest now. And they brought him in and just do a sacrifice or two. And they would kind of keep some of the things rolling. But this was not what God intended. This was not the way God ordained for things to happen. These were not God's people. And so what they're asking is, is like, hey, listen, we've just kind of got a watered down version of of the Jewish religion. We've got just kind of our own compromised version of the Jewish religion. Let us come alongside you and it'll all be fine. But you'll notice what the people do. The leaders rebuff them and they say, no, we cannot compromise. We can't take this devotion and this dedication that we've brought back, the the single-minded focus and, and mix it with your compromised faith. And this is one of the the easiest ways that Satan can hinder what we're doing is just an invitation to compromise because it's not an out-and-out rejection of the Lord. You don't have to turn away from the Lord completely. You don't have to stop what you're doing. Just slow it down a good bit. Cut a few corners. Lower your standards. Just decide to say, it'll be fine. If you ever find yourself saying things like this, well, I, I guess it's okay. If you're saying that a lot, we're probably approaching compromise. There's always going to be people who say, hey, we can follow the Lord, but we don't have to really follow the Lord. We can follow the Lord and do some other things as well. And what you end up with is God and syndrome. You ever suffered from that before? Where we like God, we just want to have God and this other thing. So we have the Lord and we just want to have this other thing right alongside. It's going to be God and my work, God and my hobby, God and my play, God and whatever it might be. I like the Lord, but I just need God and this other thing to be just as important. And what happens is, is it compromises everything. It's easy. It happens to all of us if we're not careful, and so the people of God have to be alive to this compromise. They say, no, we refuse to compromise. So they move on to a second tactic. We get intimidation. Uh, look at verse four. It says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. When compromise doesn't work, they just switch tactics and they find, we're just going to come right at you. We're now going to intimidate you. Now they're going to puff out their chest and they say, oh, it's going to be like that, is it? Well, listen, if you start this, it's not going to end well. This is the biblical version of, hey, that's a nice temple there. Be a shame if something bad happened to it. It's just intimidation. This is an out-and-out out threat of them saying, listen, if you keep building, everyone's going to come after you. If you keep building, you're going to be destroyed. If you keep building, we're going to tattle on you. If you keep building, it's all going to fall apart. It's just a threat, and that makes them afraid. Threats are scary. No one likes to be Threatened. No one likes to have somebody kind of intimidate them. That's exactly what's happening here. And we have to be alive to that because sometimes there's just going to be those threats. Sometimes people say this to us. You ever been intimidated before where, where people, they're not going to hit you with their fists, but they're going to try to just kind of puff up and they're going to come against you. And typically when they do so, they use very uh, definite language. You know, everybody is against you. No one likes this idea. I'm not the only one who feels this way. This will never work. You ever heard statements like that? Anytime somebody's using really absolute language, this is usually the language of intimidation. It's an over-exaggeration to say, hey, I'm not gonna physically hurt you, but I'm gonna bring all the power I can to try to verbally intimidate you to stop doing something. It's just a threat, And a lot of times it works. And the people here, they are a little bit scared, but they're not going to give in. That leads to the third thing. It leads to slander. Look at verse 5. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they're going to bribe counselors to speak poorly against the nation of Israel. They're going to go and pay people to say bad things about Israel, that whenever Israel's name comes up, there's going to be people who cock their eyebrows. And say, well, you know, I've heard some things about them. Well, you know what they're like. I don't know about them. And all of a sudden, all the, these people far away, you've got all these counselors. There's people who are, because they're being paid, just deciding to slander Israel. They're going to say evil things about them, they're going to call them names. And this is one of the oldest tricks in the book, is that we're going to be called names for following after the Lord. If you and I want to follow after the Lord, we're going to have to endure a little bit of name calling, won't we? If you would like to be a believer in today's culture, that might invoke invoke some slander. It's been very weird to watch in the past two to three decades, but being a Christian now instead of being an asset can in some ways become a hindrance. You might be called narrow-minded, judgmental, all kinds of different names that get applied to us regardless of whether they're true or not just because you and I follow after the one true God because we say his ways are right. What he says about right and wrong still hold firm. What he says about truth is still true because we believe he is the one and only way to heaven whether well, people are going to have ideas about that. And when they do, they will slander us. And you may have felt that not just on a playground, but in a boardroom, in an office building, in your neighborhoods, online. That's usually the playground now, right? That's just basically the playground for adults is social media. Is that what we do now? This is where we kind of talk to one another. Slander is going to be the order of the day. And so the question is do we give in to that? Because no one likes to be called names, do they? I don't like it any more than you do. And there's always gonna be that temptation to say, no, 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 but let me fix it. No, 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 let me, let me tell you what I really mean. No, 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 let me, let me make sure you, you like me. And so much so that now we're back to compromise. L- let me just say whatever you want me to say. Let me, let me try to make you happy. Let me try to make everybody happy. And we're so busy trying to clear our name that we stop actually doing the thing that God asked us to do. And again, the enemy is one. He has stopped his purpose, stopped the purposes of the Lord. If you and I are going to walk with the Lord, we're going to have to be willing to endure a little name calling. But then fourthly, they're going to use political wrangling to get their point across. So look at verse six. It says, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. All right, so now what they're going to do is, because the, the, the intimidation hasn't worked, the compromise hasn't worked, the slander is not working, now they're going to attempt to use the power of the state to come in and stop the work of Israel. They said, let me, let, let me just get a bigger power, let's kind of uh, go above everybody else's heads and make sure we do whatever we can to stop this, I'll use political power to make you stop. So they're going to write an accusation against the Jews, and they're going to send it to the Persian king. Now, this is just the way of the world. Again, most people are not going to come to physical blows. Most people are not going to have a physical altercation. They're going to use words to get their way. And when that doesn't work, we're going to use political power to get their way. And this is just the way of the world. People will maneuver. People will work to try to get their way whatever way they can. And this happens on a national stage, but it happens everywhere else too. Because there's all kinds of politics, aren't there? It's not just national politics. You got office politics. You got neighborhood politics. You can have church politics. You can have all kinds of politics. Anytime you put people together, there's going to be people wrangling around. And if we're not careful, that becomes the new game. Everybody just wants to find their power and use it to get their way. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're going to try to use political power to overcome the people of God. And the question is, are we going to bow down to that? When political power is at play, do we then seek our own political power? Do we try to fight fire with fire? Do we try to do exactly what they're going to do? And we say, well, whoever has most power wins. Do we begin to play that game? Or do we have more confidence in our God who is sovereign over all the affairs of men? Do we actually trust that the God that we serve, that the God that we love, the one who has brought us here and made us a people can actually control things on his own? Or do we feel like we've got to play that game and take that into our own hands as well? Again, there's the temptation to take our eyes off the Lord and to pull them back down towards men. And so four different types of compromise, four different types uh, of opposition that we have to deal with. But then here's the bigger problem uh, that might be a little bit harder to see in the text. This is a perpetual problem. This is not going to be something that just happens every now and then. This will always happen. And you can see that here at the end of the text. I know some of these names are very hard uh, to pronounce, but did you notice something here towards the end of those verses? We had four different kings referenced really fast. Did you see that? We started with Cyrus, and then they mentioned Darius, and then we got Ahasuerus, who's got a different name. His name was also Xerxes, just for fun. And then we have Artaxerxes. So four different Persian kings all mentioned, just boom, 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 boom. Well, this passage and really the next three chapters only really apply to Cyrus and Darius. Those next two kings, Ahasuerus and Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, they are the next two emperors. They're not coming around for a little while. They're gonna reign for the next hundred years. So why are they being mentioned here? Why would we start with Cyrus and Darius and then all of a sudden start talking about the next two kings? It's almost like the writer here is giving us not a flashback, he's giving us a flash forward. He's saying, listen, there's something that's happening right here during this time, in the times of Cyrus and Darius, but guess what? It'll happen again, and then it's going to happen again. In fact, it's going to happen for the next century. What's happening here is just emblematic of something that always happens. This opposition to the Lord's work is going to happen in every single season. It's going to happen in every single era. It's going to happen to every single group of people And under every single one of these emperors, the same pattern is going to play itself out again. There's always going to be opposition, which means for us today, there will be as well. And so, how do we respond? How do we respond when you and I face opposition? When you and I face different times where we're tempted to compromise or being intimidated into submission? or We have people who are using political power to kind of maneuver us out. How are we going to respond? Well, again, this is gonna come back to how we view the providence of God. So let's skip forward now to Ezra chapter five. Look at Ezra chapter five. Look what happens here. Ezra chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. It says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tat and I, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethazar Arbaz and I and their associates, that's the bad guys, these are the neighbors, came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and so finish this structure? They also asked them, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. And this is a copy of the letter the Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethazar uh, Bazanai and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. Let's stop right there. All right, so I a few things to note here. Right there in verse one, it says the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. If you were with us last week, we were in that prophecy, the prophecy of the prophet Haggai. You also have recorded in scripture the prophecies of the prophet Zechariah. So we have there right here in Scripture, these are the contemporary prophets who are speaking into this situation. And the amazing thing is is that when these prophets spoke the word of the Lord, they come to them and say, "Why did you stop? Let's rebuild the temple. Even in the face of opposition, the people begin to rebuild, and as their enemies begin to use all of these tactics against them, something amazing happens. They don't stop the work. They don't stop. They keep going. They refused to be intimidated. They refused to be scared. They refused to compromise. They said, we're not going to give in to this political wrangling. We're going to follow after the Lord. They trusted in the Lord their God. And so they continue the work. Now, this is going to take some time. But they're going to continue day in and day out, week in and week out, year in and year out. Why? Why would they do so? Because they believed that the God who had made them a nation, the God who had saved them even when in exile, the God who had made a way back even through that very pagan nation, the God who had helped them rebuild would be the God who watched over them in all of their work. As long as they followed after the Lord, this is exactly where they needed to be. Therefore, they would not stop following after him. But the opponents aren't done either. It said there in verse 6 that these guys are going to send a letter to Darius the king. So now we have a new emperor. A little bit of time has gone by. They're going to send a letter to the emperor. And we actually have those letters recorded. If you read the rest of chapter 5 and verse 6, you see some of these letters. These are political letters written between two heads of state. And you say, well, why is this recorded in Scripture? Well, because that's what was really going on. God's working in the real world. And these people write a letter, uh, and you can imagine what it might have sounded like. In this letter, they made themselves sound like model citizens. They said, oh, emperor, we're so glad to be your loyal subjects. We're so glad you conquered us. We love being in the Persian Empire, and all we want to do is help you. But we got some neighbors, and man, they're not so great. Listen, I don't know if you know about them, but they've got a history of being super shady. They have caused a whole bunch of insurrections in the past. They don't pay their taxes on time. These are not the kind of people you want living in your area. So I don't know, but they're building this temple. If I were you, I'd go check and find out if they're really supposed to be doing this or not. So they're going to use some political power. They're going to use some slander. And they're going to see if they can get this stopped. They're going to to write a real flashy letter to see what happens. Well, let's see what happens next. The letter goes to Darius, and they do exactly that. They go back and and search through the records, and here's what they find. Go to Ezra chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Ezra chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Darius the king made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record, In the first year of Cyrus the King, Cyrus the King issued a a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, here's his decree Tatni, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethbazar Bazani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Unbelievable. This has completely backfired on them. They went and tattled to the emperor. You better stop these guys. These are not great people. Go back and see. Well, he went back and saw, and guess what? There was a decree, and so now the Persian emperor is going to say, hey, not only should they keep doing it, here's the deal, you're going to pay for it. How about that? These guys just went, went from being the Jews' would-be masters to their disgruntled benefactors. These people now have to sit there pay for it, leave them alone and watch this thing happen and they have inadvertently been a part of the temple of God being rebuilt on his site. This is unbelievable. God's hand again comes through. He blesses his people even through the hands of a pagan political structure. They were right to follow the Lord. They were right to not stop the work. They were right to honor and follow the Lord in all the things that they were doing. God came through. But don't forget the flash forward. Because while they won this battle, there will be another, and another, and another, and another, and another for a century, for multiple centuries. The battle will continue. And this is the paradox that you and I have to live in today. There's a paradox for us as believers And that you and I know that the Lord is God. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is good. That his purposes cannot be frustrated. We know that he has won. He has conquered. He is the savior. And at the same time, we struggle and we're intimidated and we're scared and we're the subject of all kinds of slander and we're going to be opposed. And there's a tension between those two realities. We're going to have to decide time and time again, are we going to continue to believe in the providence of God, that he is good, that he watches out for us, that he has a plan, that he is unfolding, even in the midst of pain and even in the midst of chaos, will we choose to remember that the Lord still is mighty, sovereign, and good, and we will follow him instead. It's a paradox that Jesus was not shy about telling us about. In fact, look what he says here. This is John chapter 16. On the night before the Son of God is executed, and just let that statement settle in for just a second. Jesus says this. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is telling them, says, listen, there's going to be trouble ahead. There are going to be people who even in the name of God are going to oppose you, who are gonna cause you all kinds of trouble I am warning you of this ahead of time. But then look what he says in verse 33, same chapter. He skips down. He talked to them about the Holy Spirit. He talks to them about persecution, but here's how he ends the chapter. He says, "I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." These are two unassailable facts that we have got to deal with. Number 1, in this world we will have trouble. Opposition is not an if, it's a win. If you want to follow after the Lord, it's not an if, it's a win. We will be opposed. We live in a broken world, we live in a sinful world. And no, we may not be fighting against the Persian kings anymore, but we do have to fight against a spiritual enemy. We talked about this in the spiritual warfare series. There's a whole range of of spiritual forces that are opposed against us. There's a, a world system opposed against us. Our own very flesh is opposed against us. We will have trouble in this world. But here's the second thing. He says, but I have overcome that world. He says, I have conquered all of those spiritual forces. They have all been dethroned. They don't have any power over me. I have conquered sin, death, and hell. I've even set you free from the power of your flesh. I've set you free from the power of this world. Jesus Christ has conquered all of these things. And so though we have tribulation, he has conquered the world. Therefore, we can take heart. We can be brave. We can be confident. As we walk forward, even in the midst of opposition, we can be confident because of who the Lord is, because of his providence, because he is powerful, but also because he has a purpose for our good. And as we seek after him, as we follow after him, we will always be exactly where we need to be. And so what does that look like for us, though? What does that mean? When we face opposition, when we face slander or intimidation or all these other different tactics, how do we respond? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is this. We need to trust His providence. We just need to trust Him. It's hard to trust when you feel scared. It's hard to trust when you're being threatened. I mean, how do you feel when somebody says, hey, man, this might jeopardize your promotion. This jeopardizes your job. This is gonna jeopardize your standing in the neighborhood. This is gonna jeopardize that opportunity you've been working for. You, you can keep up with this if you really want, but if you really choose to follow after the Lord, you just need to understand what that might mean for your bottom line. Hey, that's scary. It's scary when following after the Lord is gonna cost us. And we know that that actually might happen. It's scary to, to feel that intimidation, to feel those threads. And in that moment, we have a choice to make, and it's, am I gonna trust the Lord or not? Can I trust that he has overcome the world? Can I trust that he is still in control? Even when the world seems like it's in chaos, can I trust that the Lord is still in control? And in our darker moments, or even just our quieter moments, we might ask the honest question, is he? Because man, I don't know what you see when you turn on the television, but it's chaos out there. It seems insane out there. Is God still in control? Can he honestly take care of me? Is he really going to help me? Is he really moving in this world? And the answer is always yes. You can tell from our passage today, Did you notice that God's hand moved through the hearts of four pagan Persian emperors? Did you notice that? He just lifts them off, just like random names. These are people who ruled their known world. And God said, Whether it's this one, or that one, or this one, or that one, my purpose will always stand firm. When was the last time we saw four successive politicians do the same thing? Have you ever seen that? You have seen four politicians, four presidents, four anybody's in the same job do everything exactly the same way? That never happens. That's why they succeeded them. And yet here's the Lord moving through these four kings, and he's done it before, he'll do it after, to say, my purpose will stand. You may think you have other ideas, you may think you're in control, but the sovereign hand of God moves through history and he does what he will. He can be trusted. Do we honestly believe that the Lord is sovereign over the affairs of mankind? If we don't, then we'll give in to the intimidation. We'll give in to the threats. We'll, we'll hunker down and say, fine, I'll just stop. Just, just, just go away. Don't threaten me anymore. But if we know that the Lord is provident, if we know that the Lord is sovereign, we will stand with him and say, no, Father, even though this is hard and even though I am opposed, you are worth it, and I choose you over the power of this world. We have to trust his providence. Here's the second thing. We can respond with grace. We can respond with grace. When people oppose us, when people intimidate, when people slander, we do not fight fire with fire. In this world, we are called not simply to survive. We're not called to win. We do not respond in the way in which we are attacked we respond differently you will say well why why in the world would I do that if I'm being attacked I need to defend myself I'm being attacked I need to take care of this well well because that's not the way Jesus overcomes the world how does Jesus overcome the world when the son of God comes here and he's got all of these forces arrayed against him whether they be human or spiritual political whatever they might be how does Jesus overcome the world does he do so by intimidation does he do so by slander Does he do so by political wrangling? No. Jesus Christ overcomes by the cross. Jesus Christ comes in seeming weakness and overcomes the world. The Roman Empire seems like the greatest empire to ever have graced the planet. And Jesus Christ, who never was elected to a political office, who had never commanded a a military army, who had no personal power of his own to wield, simply preaches the word of God, and in the power of the Lord ends up conquering everything. By his death on his cross and by his resurrection, his life has been transforming the planet ever since. Jesus Christ does not conquer through the ways of this world. Jesus Christ conquers through the cross. And so that dictates how we respond to opposition. We do not fight fire with fire. Now look, that doesn't mean we just sit idly by. You're sitting there going, gosh, man, what do you... So what do we do? We just sit here. We just kind of wait around for the Lord to do something? No. I mean, he says we're gonna... We need to be aware. Look what he says here in Matthew. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 10, Verse 16. Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out as, a, in the, as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He then talks about all the ways they'll be persecuted. Listen to that. He doesn't just say, be innocent as doves. He says, "Now you need to be wise as a snake too. It's a tough world out there. You need to have your eyes up. You need to be open to what's going on. You need to be aware of what's happening around you. You're not required to just get walked on everywhere you go. You need to be innocent as doves, but You need to be as wise as serpents, but then here's how that works out in reality. Look at what Paul's going to say in Romans. In Romans chapter 12, at the end, he's, he's talking to the Romans about how we ought to react. They too were being opposed, and listen to what he says here, verse 17. It says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. There's that don't give into it, but overcome evil with good. See, we don't fight like the world fights. We don't fight with the weapons of the world. We learned in that spiritual warfare series, we have weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. We're waging a spiritual battle for our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against those spiritual forces and so we do not fight like the world fights. We do not wield these same weapons. When you get opposed, how do you react? Do we find ourselves slandering in kind? Do we find ourselves intimidating in kind? Do we find ourselves using political machinations in kind? Or do we choose to let the Lord handle those things? This is no, no, no. I'm going to act like the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow after Him. He will take care of all of these things. We do not fight like the world fights. We respond with grace. And then here's the third and final thing: we see the bigger picture. We see the bigger picture. When you and I find ourselves opposed, when we find ourselves in a fight, everything gets kind of hyper-focused. If somebody comes at us, that, that, that's a threat to us, and, and the whole world just kind of shrinks down to that, that one instance, to that, that one circumstance, and it feels like that's the whole world, but it isn't. God's plan is still unfolding, and sometimes we don't get to see all the edges of it. It's gonna take the Israelites four years to build the temple, four. This battle, though, is gonna go on for hundreds of years as they rebuild not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem, the entire city. And God's continuing to do things even through that city as he is doing this through Abraham. He's gonna bring Jesus Christ to have a plan to, to really save the entire world. And we don't see the edges of all of that when we're only worried about the fight in front of us. And so we have to resist the temptation just to to give in, to assume that this is the only thing that matters. We have to take a step back and recognize, listen, I, I don't know exactly what the Lord's doing. I don't know how he's gonna bring resolution here. I don't know how he's gonna resolve all of these things, but here's what I know. I know that God is good. I know that he is powerful. I know he has purposes and plans for me and for all of us. I know that his plan is unfolding and it cannot be thwarted. And so even if I don't understand, even if I don't see how this is all gonna work, out, out, I choose to follow after him. I choose to honor him in the way I respond, and I choose to surrender to his plan and not mine. And when we do that, we find that we can persevere even in the midst of opposition. Remember, opposition is not an if, it's a win. And when we face this as individuals, when we face this as a church, It matters how we respond, and it all starts with our understanding of the amazing power and purpose of the God who loves us. So do this one. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to spend some time worshiping here at the end of the service And look, I know some of your stories and some of the things that you're wrestling with, but not all by far. And if I ask the question, where are you facing opposition? I wonder what your answer would be. Is it in your home, your families, your neighborhoods, your workplace? Maybe it's just this world. Where are you facing opposition? Threats, persecutions, intimidations, political machinations. It's tiring. It's frustrating. It's angering. It's depressing. And maybe you're just tired of it all. So I'm just tired of this fight. Maybe it's just not worth it. And I, I am tired of all of this, just Stress. I just don't think I want to deal with it anymore. Makes sense. But the Lord didn't tell us that we wouldn't have opposition. He said we would. And he said it's worth it. He is doing something in us (laughs) that we don't fully understand. It's so glorious. He is bringing a salvation to us that is so much greater than anything we've ever fully grasped. And it's not just you or me or even us. He's doing this over the whole world. We are a part of his larger unfolding story. It's worth it. So I wonder if today we could just lift our eyes back up to him. Whatever fight you find yourself in, instead of getting all absorbed in the fight, can we lift our eyes up and just remember why he's worth it? Can we see his goodness? Can we see his glory? Can we see his grace? Can you see in the cross of Jesus Christ the love of a faithful God and the fact that he will not abandon you even when we fail? He can give us strength. He can help us persevere if we'll keep our eyes on him. What if we chose today to endure the opposition for his sake and for his kingdom. And so father help us. For all the fights that we find ourselves in. Father, quite honestly, we didn't ask for these fights. We didn't want them and yet they came. And Lord, we don't want to try to end them on our own power because we'll just mess that up. As so, Lord, would you move? Would you help? Would you heal? Would you give us strength when we don't have any left? Would you give us courage when we feel fearful? Father, would you give us wisdom when we're faced with tough choices? But Lord, all of that just comes from our vision from you. So even now as we worship you worship you, would you open our eyes even wider to just how great you are and to your glory? And we will choose today and tomorrow and the next continue to follow after you. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.